Hi everyone, welcome to the Real Estate Red Zone, brought to you by the Real Estate Center at Texas A&M University. I'm Haley Reeder, Communications Specialist. Today is Wednesday, March 18th, 2020. On this day in 1836, the new government of the Republic of Texas began a three-day stay at Gross's Retreat, Jared E. Gross's plantation home, in what is now southwestern Grimes County. President David G. Burnett and his cabinet sought sanctuary there as they retreated from Washington on the Brazos. Gross's house was used as the capital until it was officially moved to Harrisburg on March 21st. Now on to today's podcast. Please note that nothing in this podcast should be construed as legal advice for a particular situation. For specific advice, contact an attorney. From required notices to referral fees to correctly completing contracts, the real estate industry has no shortage of pitfalls that can trip up even the most conscientious licensee. Real estate broker and former Texas Real Estate Commission Chair Avis Wukash and real estate attorney and former Trek General Counsel Carrie Lewis aim to educate licensees on important legal and professional issues in their Tierra Grande column called Practically Speaking, Real Estate Questions Answered. They join us today to talk about hot topics like the effective date, referral gifts, website compliance, and iBuyers. Thanks for being here. Thank you for asking us. Happy to be here. So how do you guys pick what topics you cover in the Practically Speaking column? Well, we've got a lot of subject matter that we could certainly cover. We, we look at, at complaints that are filed at the Real Estate Commission. We speak to real estate groups, and we just take what it seems to be a common theme or a common misconception and try to focus on, on those things first. And that's how we picked the first two. Yeah, and and actually the first one, which is effective date, is such an essential part of contracts mm-hmm. that it, it's sort of the starting point. So we thought that would be our first article. Right. Yeah. When there's no effective date, nothing you know when nothing else is going to happen. It's, right. Yeah, it's, it's the baseline <laughs> for so many other dates in the contract terms. Right. See, and that's a great segue. So speaking of the January 2020 column, what is an effective date on a contract? It's the date that all of the parties have agreed to all of the changes that might have been made, and the last party has communicated to the other side, we've agreed with you. Yeah, that's what's called final acceptance. So who signs the effective date? Like, who determines it? Yeah. Usually the real estate license holder who is with the last consumer putting on the last initials. And then their, their job, of course, is to communicate to the other side, uh, the realtor on the other side or the license holder on the other side, uh, t- tonight is the night that we are putting the effective date this day on the contract, and I'm sending it to you in whatever way. What are some best practices for the effective date? Well, first of all, like I said, it is critical that it gets filled in every time. Mm-hmm. Because it is the baseline for a lot of other dates, due dates of things that are obligations that one or the other parties have to do in the contract. Mm-hmm. So that the first best practice is make sure that effective date is filled in every single time. And then I guess the other thing is just make sure that brokers are training their agents on what final acceptance is and that that date has to be 
filled in and communicated back to the other party so everybody's in agreement. Among the many difficult things to get resolved are all of those other dates, which if there's no effective date, you, you don't really know when anything else is supposed to happen. And so such a simple matter as that last person remembering to put the effective date on and communicate that to the other side can create so much confusion, liability, contradiction, bad feelings, bad feelings, all kinds of negative comes from that. And it's such a simple matter. It's amazing to me. So what do you do if the effective date on a signed contract that was already receded by the title company is blank? What do you do then? Well, the best practice would be um, to determine when that time occurred. And if you're the Let's pretend you're the buyer's agent and you realize that the listing agent who was responsible for that didn't do it and that you that it was the day before yesterday when that occurred is that you would call the other agent and say, we forgot to put the effective date on. Uh, let's, I'm sending you an amendment that my buyer has signed that changes it, that it makes the effective date, whatever two days ago it was, and the listing agent then gets the seller to sign on that. So you, you put in writing to verify the missing yeah. What was that final date of acceptance? Mm-hmm. Let's put it in. It has to be on the amendment because the contract's already been received. And then, of course, once the amendment is signed by both parties, it has to be given to the title company. So yeah. kind of the keeper of all the contract documents. Well, and if there's a lender involved, they should also have that because a multitude of dates tie to mortgage financing right. to the effective date. So it's important for the lender to also be aware of the timelines that the buyer has to meet. Now let's move forward to the upcoming column in April 2020. So that one talks about gifts for clients who refer potential other clients. What kinds of gifts can you give to a client? Okay, so this is what the law says. And then I'm going to explain how Trek has interpreted that law. What the law says is you can give a gift to an unlicensed person if it's for $50 or less in value but it cannot be cash, mm-hmm. okay? So the Trek has interpreted that to mean in terms of a gift card, because that's a question we get all the time. Well, is a gift card cash? If a gift card is like a bank gift card, like a MasterCard or a Visa that you can spend anywhere just like cash, Trek has opined that that is the equivalent of cash and you cannot give that. If it's a gift card, say, to Starbucks or Macy's or something, some store, single store, where it can only be spent in that one place, Trek has opined that that is the equivalent of merchandise, mm-hmm. and you can give that. So that that's probably one of the most common questions we get is yeah. on gift cards. So I wanted to, to explain that. And you had an example in there about putting someone in for a drawing for Cowboys tickets. Because the drawing is free to enter, but the value of the tickets is going to be more than $50. What happens in that situation? Right, and so this is, you know, people like to get creative with um, rewarding uh, their customers who may give more than one referral. And also they, you know, it's just, it's it's an event, so they get their name out there. So a, a, a drawing for a pair of tickets to anybody who refers a client you have to look at the value of what the winner would get. And so a pair of tickets to a Cowboys game costs a lot more than $50. So it would be a violation of Trek's rule on referrals. 
because even though you can make the arguments, well, it doesn't cost anything to enter, that whoever does win it, and let's be honest, everybody enters it with the expectation and hope that they will be the winner. So you're expecting something more than $50. So that's mm-hmm. kind of the reasoning behind that. Yeah. Can you set up a repeat reward program for people who refer three or more folks to the brokerage yearly? You can, but it is really difficult to maintain. For instance, let's say, you know, in, I think the example that we use in the article is you have a, a, a broker who sets up a program that says we'll um, send flowers every quarter to any customer or person, actually, who refers us three or more clients. So if, if somebody refers, and in each one of those flower baskets costs around $45, $45-$50. Well, if you have somebody who refers early on, in the, in the year, say January, February, and you get your three referrals, well, you're going to send them a $45 gift basket in March, in June, in September, and in December. Well, if they get it for the whole year, that's more than $50 for each referral that they gave. So that could be a violation. So it gets very, very tricky. And technically, the law says it's $50 or less per referral. So if you give, say, maybe $20 for one referral and then $70 for one referral, are you in violation in that second referral, depending on what gifts that you send out each month? So it gets very complicated. Yeah. So, you know, what would be a best practice, Avis? Well, I wasn't going to do a best practice. I was just going to say some people listening might be saying, well, who's going to turn you in? Uh, Well, you're going to get turned in by somebody that didn't get something that they thought they should have gotten or another license holder who is jealous of what you're doing. And right. all of this is complaint-driven. There will be nothing, right. no sanction made. If, you, if you've done this and didn't get caught, that's cool. Uh, just be aware it could be a competitor or an, a, an aggrieved consumer that didn't get a gift basket and thought they should have. Right. file a complaint against you. And, and the really interesting thing, I'm glad you brought that up, because the really interesting thing, the way the law is written, the people you're trying to reward by giving them a referral gift, and let's say you give them something more than $50, they are now considered under the law to have engaged in unlicensed practice of real estate because if you're not licensed, you can't receive more than $50. Mm-hmm. So technically, I don't think Trek has ever done this, but technically the consumers who got the gift overvalued could be charged with a violation of unlicensed activity. So it's it's just very interesting the way mm-hmm. the law is written. You could be setting up your people you're trying to reward for some really bad news from yeah. Trek. <laughs> so a best practice, you asked about that, mm-hmm. would be just get, don't set up a complicated program. Just give a gift of, of $50 or less each time you get a referral. And you can have multiple types of gifts. So you're, if somebody's a uh, refers you many people, they can get something different every time. So what about drawings for, let's say, a cruise for anyone who wants to enter? Let's just say anyone who likes your Facebook page. Regardless of whether they refer potential clients to my brokerage, would that get you in any legal trouble? With the real estate commission, likely not. However, you need to get someone to advise you about whether or not you're creating some sort of a lottery and fall afoul of the penal code, and that wouldn't be anything that I really know too much about. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. 
let's move on from there. What are some hot real estate or legal topics relevant to our listeners that you guys might want to touch on? I think the big ticket items right this minute that are on the minds of of people quite a bit are, are uh, being compliant with having your all your websites uh, handicapped accessible. Mm-hmm. And we do have some attorneys, not from Texas so far, who are attempting to take money from real estate license holders for having non-compliant websites for ADA. And they're sending letters and demanding money. If you will pay me, we won't sue you for this. And it is the law. And so there's really no way to create a safe harbor for it except to comply with the law. So one of the messages Carrie and I are trying to get out to as many industry people and in speaking as much as we can about it is how to become compliant or, or get someone to show you how to be compliant with the ADA in your website. Right. And because the way that the law is written, the ADA law is written, how it's been interpreted is that even if you're trying to come up to speed, that's not an excuse. Your mm-hmm. site is either ADA compliant or it is not. Now, there's a whole range of reasonable compliance and also depends on the size of your organization, the amount of money that you have, things like that. But but again, if, if your site is not compliant, then you do need to go ahead and get in contact with somebody who understands what it takes to make your site compliant. And there are some easy things to do and then some things that may be a little more complicated, but it's, it's, there's a whole checklist of things to do. Well, this has been the law of the land for a couple of years, and, and the government has not chosen to enforce it, but it, it doesn't mean that it's not the law. And yeah. the lawyers have been interesting that they've picked this up to, uh, I believe they started with some other industries before they got to ours with the and another one is the Digital Millennial Copyright Act. And there is a safe harbor in, in that situation that uh, the Texas Realtors and the National Association of Realtors both have a, a bunch of documentation to help you create that safe harbor. If you are using material on your website, and it, whether you put it there or someone else put it there, you, you can be uh, responsible for violating someone's copyright. Mm-hmm. And in and the, and the situation that, that brought this kind of in everybody's face recently was uh, another demand letter sent by an attorney to a real estate broker and, uh, demanding that they pay money for having a picture on their website that was there from an IDX feed, which means it wasn't anything that that broker took a picture of or had a picture of, wasn't his listing, wasn't anything to do with him. It came through an MLS IDX feed from another brokerage somewhere else. And that broker had violated a copyright, but the, but the uh, demand letter went to the broker whose website they found it on. Mm-hmm. And demanding pretty significant amount of money in, in excess of $20,000. And, uh, and that broker whose website uh, was in violation had not taken advantage of the safe harbor, which, which the act allows you to uh, pay a small fee for three years for someone in your operation to be the person. You have a little disclosure that you put on your website that says, if you think we've violated your copyright, you please contact whoever that person is. And then you have a time period in which to take it down. So that's your safe harbor to not find yourself in the situation that you are with ADA where you just have to be compliant. Yeah. And and I with an IDX feed, I don't know how in the world you could guarantee that everybody's listing that came into your website that somebody searched was compliant since it had nothing to do with you. It's right. a little bit scary. 
And, and I think the way, you know, people <clears throat> share pictures on the Internet and you have gifts and you have all these other things that, that people just like to show each other, right? Um, people have forgotten in general that if it's being used for a commercial purpose, it could be copyrighted by somebody. Right. And there are sites you can go to that, that will allow you to use pictures that say they are available um, in the public domain. In the public domain for commercial use for free, no copyright restrictions. So you just, when you're developing a website also, you need to be very careful. But like Ava said, something like a feed that comes from MLS that's got pictures of houses that another broker had put up, how the heck would you know? So there is at least some reasonable safe harbors under that law, which um, everyone, no matter what their industry is, should take right. advantage of. I thought of another thing we could talk about, which is iBuyer, all of the iBuyer solutions that are around us. And, and I think the... Um, to me, the training is the big aspect of that, and training license holders, particularly who are representing sellers, to uh, do a net sheet, to do as much diligence as you can if an iBuyer makes an offer on a property you have listed. Can you back up for a second? What, what would you how would you describe what an iBuyer is? If I'm a seller, how, what's an iBuyer? I'm going to offer you cash to close on your house pretty quick. And, uh, and I will close on it, and then I intend to resell it. And I am going to make you a low offer, and I'm going to have a lot of fees attached to that, but I probably won't disclose those two things I just said very adequately. So it looks like a really good deal for the seller to um, cash deal, close right away. And a lot of these are, are generated on the Internet, from an Internet yes. site, which is why they're called iBuyers. Right. Yes. Our License holders just need to really help the seller review that offer like they would any offer exactly. that they got from any source. And, and I think it causes us to get sharper with our ability to determine all the cost, not only the regular cost, but whatever's associated with this particular buyer, just like any buyer. And remind us that our fiduciary duty is to the seller, and it is to tell the seller what, based on this offer, maybe an iBuyer, maybe a straight-up regular buyer, right. what they're asking you to pay on their behalf. Mm -hmm. And what does that look like in your pocket when this is all done? Right. All said and done. And, and the, the one advantage to iBuyers that, that they will tout is that they can get it done quickly and they give you the time to move. You don't have to go through showings, all of these things. And if that is important to your client, that's great. But they really need to understand the dollars involved up front, which a lot of iBuyers don't disclose up front. So as a fiduciary, as Ava said, uh, do the net sheet. And if there's some missing gaps, ask those questions, just like you would of any other buyer. Well, and Amazon's coming. I don't know what that's going to be. <laughs> <laughs> Buy and sell homes on Amazon. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. That is interesting. Yeah. You get Prime on that? I think yeah. so. <laughs> yeah. 24-hour delivery. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you yeah, for our asking pleasure. us. Thanks for having us. Thanks again, Carrie and Avis. You can read their quarterly column in Tierra Grande, or TG, magazine, our flagship publication sent to over 180,000 people. If you have a general topic you would like discussed in the next column, send Carrie and Avis an email. We've included a link to their email addresses on our podcast webpage, 
and in the YouTube description box. TG Magazine also features articles from Carrie about topics like real estate license suspensions, broker succession planning, and business entities. We post a link to her latest articles, as well as another podcast featuring Carrie, on our podcast webpage. We've also included a link to the January 2020 issue of TG. To ensure you receive the April 2020 issue of the magazine, please make sure you update your mailing address with Trek. There is no charge to do this, and it is highly recommended that you use your home address rather than your work address for your contact information. If you can't wait for the April 2020 issue to be mailed out, check out our research library. We post all of our Tierra Grande articles there before the issue is published so you can always stay on top of the latest real estate research. We post a link to the research library on our podcast webpage. That's going to be it for today's podcast. If you want more from the Real Estate Center, head to our website. That's www.recenter.tamu.edu. There, you'll find the latest data, research articles, news, and more. To stay up to date on when articles are published on our website, follow the Real Estate Center on social media. You can find us with the handle at recentertx on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. For more podcasts like these, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or to our YouTube channel. All podcasts are also available for free on our website. Thanks for joining us today in the Real Estate Red Zone, brought to you by the Real Estate Center in College Station, Texas, where we've been helping Texans make the best real estate decisions since 1971. This is Haley Reader, and I'll see you next time. Bye.